Hello, my name is Zane, and this is the second episode of Renaissance Man Now Turned. Three bucks, one mic. <laughs> That's good. That is excellent. I'm Tom. I'm the second buck in this bunch. <laughs> and I'm uh, Fahad Butt, the third buck in the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a whole lot for you today. Um, excellent. So this podcast is generally about um, the credibility of academia. Um, can we trust them to do the important research and uh, science ever since it started its infantile march and uh, the enlightenment has gone forward to discover a great many things and we wanted to turn a critical eye to some areas we thought needed some work uh, been shown up in the news lately <clears throat> and I think that starts uh, a pretty good general background for what uh, we're all looking for I'm specifically looking at a uh, critical race theory queer studies women's studies and um, how this these disciplines generate good information, especially in terms of the humanities, but I'm leveling a really hard criticism of it recently uh, by focusing on the political movements that use this information, sometimes uh, for good, but more often than not, uh, more uh, po polarizing and I'd even say super inaccurate and unscientific work. So that's what I'm doing. I wanted to ask your guys' thoughts on what, what, I, what academia areas are you looking at or what brought you to this? Well, the tree I'm barking up is majorly in social science in general. Uh, I know that Zane is focusing more on the aspects of critical theory and different cultural studies. My attention is more to a lot of the sciences that people actually have uh, considered more dependable, like psychology, for instance, and sociology. So I'll be looking at some mm. of the problems that are actually afflicting both of those communities and some of the shortcomings of experiments and things like uh, IQ, uh, success, and stuff along those lines. And I'm going to be looking at um, science, and I'm going to be talking a bit about some of the statistical tricks that scientists use and how some scientific publications are sensationalized and are uh, turned into crap um, and mm -hmm. fed to the masses, like spam. I'm going to be talking about p-hacking, sample size, and the size of the effect. Um, I'm going to be talking about predatory journals, how, uh, how doctor, doctors' careers in particular are now based on the amount of publications they give out and how that causes conflicts of interest. I'm also going to be talking about how um, how science it si the relationship between science and the media and then I'm going to be talking about how you can also start reading scientific journals and realizing whether they are in fact bullcrap. Hmm, I like that. Good place to start out. So let's dive right in. I think uh, um, anyone will appreciate jumping off after me. Um, so as I said before, I'm focusing on uh, critical race theory, queer studies, uh, was commonly referred to by uh, its critics, these cultural studies, as grievance studies. Um, and grievance really means that uh, they're using political, uh, they're more exp explicitly political and um, trying to achieve some social or political means by uncovering hidden social meanings. Uh, and it adheres to um, critical theory critiques of I mean, you've heard it recently if you've even tuned into the news uh, where they might rattle off something like uh, white supremacy and um, white privilege, um, white fragility. Uh, you, you'll hear all these terms uh, 
talked about and uh, discussed at length in feminist critiques. Um, toxic masculinity is a one, another wonderful example. But anyways, I wanted to focus on a, a hoax published by um, three renowned academics. Helen Pluckrose, uh, editor of Aereo Magazine, James A. Lindsay, author and mathematician, and Peter Bokhassian, an assistant professor of philosophy at the Portland State University. What they did is they basically published 20 hoax papers to test the rigorous review process of various um, um, universities th throughout the nation and internationally. Uh, I mean, U.S., of course. Uh, and I think this um, is a wonderful um, pausing point where we will have to come back to it, but there's going to be a difference between a, a discussion on the difference between knowledge and sophistry. Um, and for those of you that don't know, knowledge is what these um, papers are going for. They want to pr produce useful knowledge for whatever, for their respective disciplines to, to be used to accomplish some goal where sophistry is just arguing for the sake of arguing, for winning. Uh, uh, that could be um, forwarding why um, toxic masculinity in, in a political context is the only good theory. And, and I think if someone, if you have an advocate or a research professor pushing their research question or their preconceived notion instead of what the actual knowledge and rigorous data shows, then we ought to avoid that. And that's what I'm going for. Anyways, this hoax, uh, these 20 hoax papers, seven published papers made it through uh, esteemed um, colleges, and this includes Temple uh, reviewers that were at Temple University, Penn State, UCLA, Trinity College of Dublin, and the University of Michigan, to name a few. And all these uh, journals are highly influential in the areas of feminist philosophy, gender studies, and critical race theory. Um, so, wait, wait, so what's the issue with all these? Uh, the issue with um, the journals or the papers published. Okay, what's the issue with both of them? All right, so anyways... But there is an issue to begin with. I mean. So Helen, Helen and her friends um, published all these patently absurd um, papers that um, used, uh, uh, for example, one wanted to forward these obnoxious uh, research questions. One was um, how to address your white privilege, and what they did is they took... No joke, they took the transcript of Mein Kampf and they replaced where Hitler's talking about the Jews with white people and put it under the research question of how to atone for your white privilege uh, as a um, lesbian white woman trying to... Uh, Wait, so they, what, what did they do? They took... Uh, they took the text of Mein Kampf okay. and just replaced all the language. They, they just replaced, replaced the word Jew with, with white people. Yeah. And then they published that? So, published. so yeah, so the paper was about how to atone for your white privilege and they, what they really did is they just appropriated the language of Mein Kampf in addressing how your white privilege is toxic and you have to be able to um, rid yourself of your privilege and explain it away. That's what the research paper was. That's just one paper that uh, went through the review process. Didn't right. make it. There were many that didn't make it. But of the handful of papers that did make it, that's how comparably absurd they were. They had these whack um, methodologies and research questions that were approved by these reviewers, all these uh, okay, institutions. Okay, but wait, how, how is this... Re okay, like, what kind of research methods did they employ? Because I, I come from a very strong scientific... Background, yeah, absolutely. Right? So, so how does research happen in the social sciences, especially when you don't really have any qua quantitative data to collect? All right, so it is. Uh, uh, thank you. That's a good question. So they're qualitative. Um, they start uh, with 
abduction, which uses multiple theories to re reflexively understand the data. Wait, and so these are, these are their own theories? Um, no, so critical race theory, for example, it posits... I'm, I'm saying like in, in general, um, in the social sciences is when you're doing qualitative research, is it more so a mind to world fit or well, a world to mind fit? Well, uh, let me let me butt in uh, and say that a lot of the critical theorists, essentially, they descended from uh, the School of Frankfurt um, and people like Herbert Marcuse, uh, Antonio Gramsci in the early 1960s, who uh, essentially sort of tried to view the world as this oppressor versus oppressed matrix. And that was picked up on by a lot of well, who were considered visionary philosophers mm -hmm. back at the time. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of analysis, it's almost like a lens that people use and they look at issues through this lens and that they make conclusions from it. So, you know, it's like Marxism is a lens through which you can see the world. The critical theory is another lens through which you can see mm -hmm. the world. And, and it uh, goes without saying that all these theories they start with a set of core assumptions, but that's that's worked into the equation. So, like, they'll use um, Marx's oppressed and uh, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie right. to to characterize economic conflict. Uh, they are useful insofar as they're descriptive. So yeah, I know I know like the functionalists, for example, they say that every institution exists because it has a function within our society, mm -hmm. right? So that's their uh, that's their lens. So how do you do research with regards to that? Or is it not research, is it um, just publication? So here, uh, actually, I have uh, some bullet points of what the good research is. Um, it's value-oriented, it's subjective with the knowledge, with the knowledge that how it's created, it, whatever knowledge is created has political and social implications. Um, social reality has many layers, and we're studying the world to uncover hidden meanings in those in social reality and looking at social reality's relationship to the physical world as well. And then also the purpose of the research is explicitly, especially like critical studies, is to liberate and empower people by addressing some social issue. Um, but going back to how they actually do the research process, they start with core assumptions. So critical race theory says that um, marginalized populations, especially like African Americans in the context of the US, um, if you wanna talk about African American health, you're going to look at the historical context of slavery. You're going to look at Jim Crow laws. You're going to look how um, segregationist policies like redlining today influence health. And you're going to run your data through of um, just here in Columbus, Ohio. So there is data. So there, there is numbers. Yeah, there is numbers. There is data on infant mortality rate here in Columbus, Ohio. And we do know from my public health classes that black uh, uh, mothers have uh, 3.1 times higher chance of death uh, while giving birth and that their babies also have a very high chance to die uh, after being born. So that's, they're retroactively applying theories to describe health um, trends. So that is an example of what this research could be used for. And this is what I just mentioned is taught in class to me in my sociology so of so death and dying. Kind of, so they're kind of explaining what's going on after the fact. Yes, po but... Post hoc analysis almost. Yeah. Is it... Would um, you say it's post hoc analysis or not really? Uh, no, not really, because there's still a good methodology. They still have a good review process. Yeah. Where, the, where we're looking at... We're critiquing... Uh, for example, what I just described got through the, the, the um, academic review process. And uh, my critique is there's good knowledge generated, but 
just like this patently absurd example that I mentioned about Hitler, even the bad ones can get through, and we need to tighten down on what it, what criteria we have for good scholarship versus bad. So it sounds like, at least from what you're saying, that a lot of this critical theory uh, perspective is based on history. A lot of it is analysis of history, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, certainly the example of race you're talking about. Taking multiple theories. Right. Uh, to understand the data, but yes. Right, and that was that was essentially how Marxism was devised as well. It was this analysis of history to look for patterns and essentially trying to apply those patterns to the modern day and see how they fit in order to understand people's motiv- motivations and to basically break down a certain set of data, such mm-hmm. as the disparity in income between African Americans and mm-hmm. uh, white people, and the disparity in income between women and men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, a- absolutely. And to put a finer point on it, my reason for evaluating this is you'll see, you'll hear in the me- in, in media and through activists, um, uh, when you think about cancel culture, or uh, when you think about doxing, when you think about people. Wait, cancel culture. Cancel culture is like saying you're canceled. Yeah, you're canceled. Like, oh, you said something that was homophobic, xenophobic, or sexist. Uh, We don't want to watch you. This was a microaggression. You're Mm -hmm. forwarding libels that shouldn't, that are harmful, and that shouldn't be said in public. Basically, uh, in one vein, like the the First Amendment vein, saying this isn't allowed. You're not allowed to talk about this or think about this unless you're one of those privileged groups, or you have special knowledge to do so. So. I'm talking about this too because I'm against cancel culture and deplatforming and all of that, mm-hmm. which has shown up. If you look at, um, uh, let's think, uh, OSU and Ben Shapiro came here. Oh, we had, God. We had protesters <laughs> yeah. for those at right. home. Yeah, I was there actually in the front row of um, uh, of the screening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, when they had it in the union, in the not in the main theater where he was at, but in the other one, um, in the theater. And then he came out in front of all of us. Yeah, Yo, yeah. bro, the dude was short. He really yeah, he's is. He's about 5'8". <laughs> I, 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 I went, bro, I went to the lies, event. Bro, he's like 5'2". Nah, he's not that short. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's like a little shorter than I am. And I'm like 5'9", 5'10". Mm-hmm. Around that. He was a... Yeah, it was a fun night. It yeah. was a fun night. I, I, yeah, it was a good one. But event. I remember seeing on my way in um, the posters that were up for the event. There were counter-protest posters yeah. and like even sharpied Hitler stashes and like right. saying... Ben Shapiro's a fascist. Like I'm a, and there were active attempts by many clubs, more liberal leaning clubs, to cancel quote unquote or say, hey, don't go to his event because right. he he's a misogynist. Um, uh, yeah. What is it? And I mean, this happens in academia too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll add is that there was one event I know of a few years ago in California. I don't know if it was Berkeley or what the college was, mm-hmm. uh, but my my knowledge of this is a little bit hazy, but essentially there was a day where uh, white students were asked not yeah. to come to class, and this one professor defied that and was there, and there's a video online, there's a viral video of him getting shouted down by a group of students. Uh, so this does. This is not just something that manifests itself that in the political discourse. Or, you guys want to focus this conversation more on academia, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, this was the things that actually matter. The yeah, things yeah. that hold sure. esteem within our society. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, he, world star music, world star videos. But well, it wasn't number. It wasn't a world star video. <laughs> but it, he does. He does make a good point about cancel culture. Anyways, yeah. uh, my point was, I was. That's that's where a lot of this critique is coming from. Academia yeah. that is pushing forward some political and social issues, uh, and defining it in discourses. Yeah, how we're talking about it. 
so I'm saying, okay, where did this come from? And that sure. I'm saying these disciplines of academia. So like you're talking about the um, reproductive, the R value, uh, where you have to reproduce your results. No, no, no. Or, so that's that's a whole different topic. Well, no, I'm saying now shifting to that that R the R value is not about reproducing results. So the R value is about um, the core. It's called the correlation coefficient. Okay. Oh, okay. And then people. People tend to think that there's a linear relationship between. I thought you meant. Re, no. What? I thought you meant the, the reproducibility for reproducibility. Okay. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the Stanford Prison experiment? Well, what I actually want to do is pick up where he left off and start by mentioning uh, s another incident very similar to the one he's talking about called the Sokol Affair, mm -hmm. which actually occurred back in the 1990s. Uh, now, the Sokol Affair was very interesting because it was a uh, NYU professor of physics named Alan Sokol mm -hmm. who submitted a paper to a critical studies journal that claimed that this idea of quantum uh, gravity was a social construct and it essentially just weaved together a bunch of smart sounding words mm -hmm. and created a paper that was complete nonsense mm -hmm. but it was published mm -hmm. uh, by this critical theorist theory journal so a lot of uh, these accusations have their origins uh, with the Sokol affair actually and mm -hmm. I do want to point out too that in the case of the incident you're mentioning those people were not right-wing ideologues oh, they no, were no, left-wing no. people mm -hmm. uh, and even uh, prominent liberal ac academics have made remarks on this. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Steven Pinker mm -hmm. is a very famous uh, psycholinguist, actually, and he remarked, uh, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but he remarked that essentially uh, universities are not a laughingstock because of events Except like this. Except OSU, of course. Except the Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. Okay, but why? Well, we'll get to that. But let me go into more of the problems with academia before I talk about why Ohio State's the greatest university ever. So what I want to sort of hone in on is two separate uh, experiments that were actually very popular and very prominent in psychology in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that is, one of them is very, very well known. In every intro to psych class, everybody knows it, and that is the Stanford Prison Experiment where everybody talks about how this shows uh, man's true nature and sheds a light on the deep evils that are inherent in human beings. Now, the problem with this incident is, number one, you have to consider the fact that when you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with probably the most complex um, ent living entity that we can ever hope to study. You know, like predicting the behavior of human beings and understanding the behavior of human beings and human nature is something that people have tried and failed to understand for the past uh, 4,000 years. So thinking that this prison experiment could allow you to make a concrete claim such as what it was used for is on its face uh, a pretty flawed um, concept. But the problem with the experiment was it was incredibly hard to replicate. And so years later, there were other experiments that cast doubt on it, not to the extent that it was completely discredited, mm -hmm. but to the extent where you could not say whether or not it was the factors that actually contributed to the people behaving they were. Mm -hmm. So what's one of the factors I'm talking about? Well, personality. So if the Stanford Prison Experiment essentially uh, courted people into um, – the testing facilities with an ad in the newspaper mm -hmm. telling them that you're gonna some people are gonna get to play the prisoners some people are gonna get to play the 
um, prison guards. Mm. So essentially what you have to consider is, well, if somebody has a dominant personality and somebody has a domineering personality, they're going to already be drawn to being the prison guard mm -hmm. and living in that role. And so essentially what you've had from the outset, see your experiment is already flawed because what you have from the outset is somebody who's already more inclined to uh, act in a certain way. And so factors like this are left out to the extent where somebody could do another experiment uh, and they could demonstrate that, well, actually, um, these human beings were inclined not to act that way, therefore the Stanford prison experiment is wrong. Mm -hmm. The point I'm making is that these studies are hard to replicate and these studies are hard to break down and what's more these studies are um, overall just very hard to understand mm -hmm. and the other test I'll bring up is called the marshmallow test it's another one that is often talked about in psychology courses and it talks about the factor of delayed gratification in, um, in success and essentially it, use, it was used to justify this claim that if one is trained in delayed gratification at the age of five, they will be 10 times as successful, as successful uh, later. But the fact is that there are more studies that cast doubt on that in the future. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, there have been studies that actually showed that they grossly underestimated the effect that this has. And so the point is that you really, on the one hand, you can't discredit these studies, but on the other hand, so much doubt is cast upon them that you really can't say either way. And so the problem is not that the science is flawed to begin with and then it sort of moves back and forth. The, the problem is that nothing is ever really settled because you just can't know. Mm -hmm. And I think to add and elaborate to that, it's uh, these, this information is always catered to a very specific question. Uh, the more general it gets, the uh, less accurate and precise uh, these studies are. So uh, to the extent we can take uh, the information about the Stanford Prison Experiment and, uh, and pull some ethics out of it on like how to conduct a, a good scientific study, as this was one of the pioneering um, studies in that field to format in uh, shape how we actually conduct scientific investigations in terms of sociology research, uh, but we we did don't you gain did much. You the ethics involved. Uh, the ethics, um, the ethics is like from now from my sociology classes we talk about Stanford Prison Experiment on how um, ethical, like what not to do, right? yeah, like how internal uh, review boards um, develop their criteria. So yeah, informed consent was taken away from this. Uh, Sanford prison experiment um, and in, in what regards do you um, let a, uh, the participant in research know uh, the full risk um, the Sanford prison experiment they didn't have any criteria like that but thanks to that now we do so that's something concrete we can pull away from that but to what extent does the Stanford prison experiment as um, Tom was addressing uh, point to people who might be drawn to roles authoritative roles because they want to bully or harass other people, that's not as certain or clearly defined. Well, you're, you're touching on a really good point there, and actually this is a good segue into this whole discussion and this controversy around IQ, because when we bring ethics into the framework, we have to consider the values and 
sort of the consequences of certain studies and certain claims. So what everybody talks about with race and IQ is this guy named Charles Murray, mm -hmm. who is a scholar for the American Enterprise Institute, uh, and he was very big in the 80s and 90s for mm -hmm. pushing this idea that uh, there was a difference between, um, there was a difference in IQ between uh, all of the different races. And this, ever since then, has experienced a whole wide amount of backlash mm -hmm. to the extent that Sam Harris actually recently featured Charles Murray on a podcast. Mm -hmm. And just because Sam Harris talked to Charles Murray about the issue, he was dragged through the mud by Ezra Klein over at Vox and sort of this, this cancel culture aspect that you're saying is, is coming into it. But the thing about race and IQ that actually matters is that what you're bordering on is something that people could use to justify uh, a form of eugenics, yeah, which or, is... Or discriminatory government policies. Exactly. But which facts it, don't care about your feelings. Well, you know, that's one way to look at it. But you know, um, with regards to race and IQ, if you've ever read Nicholas Nassim Taleb's works on, on uh, IQ, yeah, um, I don't want to mention all of his arguments right now because it's just way too long, but sure. basically he says that uh, the measure of IQ is BS. Mm-hmm. Because what you're really measuring is just the ability to take a test. Yeah. You're not really measuring a particular intelligence. If you really want to objectively measure intelligence, what you really want to do is see how quickly your neurons adapt. Mm -hmm. And that might be different in different parts of the brain. Wow. And like in, in different parts of a single brain, how quickly the neurons can change. That's interesting. And form connections. This is, a, this is some of my own thoughts that I've been mm -hmm. thinking about. Well, what was the name of that person again? Nassim Nicholas Taleb, N-A-S-S-I-M, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, yeah. T-A-L-E-B. Gotcha. Well, I'll, I'll definitely look into that because, I mean, we were talking about this before, was that IQ levels in America have gone through the roof since the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of different explanations around it. One is that the it's... The Flynn effect. Right. The, the Flynn effect is basically that people have become... Um, better nourished and as a result of that they've had better brains and um, their IQs have gone up right that's one thing or right. number two another thing is that people have been just better at taking tests right okay like you know the history of IQ is that in the beginning they used to have tests in which they'd ask people what is the name or which baseball player has scored the most uh, home runs and then they'd give you like a list of uh, of baseball players Okay, and then you're supposed to pick the right one. Right. And they'd have questions like, well, what's the capital of Gambia? Okay. Um, like questions, like very content-oriented questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, as, as a res and the people who developed that was like the, was the military, and they were just trying to assess wh who's smart and who's not. Or not who's smart and who's not, who's dumb and who's not dumb. Because mm -hmm. okay, there's an asymmetry there. Mm -hmm. Because who's smart and who's not smart, that's like the... Um, there's a difference between that. Right. So these things come into mind when you're considering stuff like the race and IQ issue, which is, you know, a really big one because well, the... I just, want, I just want to finish my point. My sure. Point is you, that, you go ahead. Yeah. yeah. My point is that um, there is really no way to create the perfect IQ test. No. And um, the best thing that you can create is just pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And you can train that. You can get better at quote-unquote IQ test. Mm -hmm. okay. 
Um, like I'm a I'm an excellent test taker, but when it comes to say social skills, I'm average. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to have different sort of intelligence quotients that are you know subdivided even in IQ versus EQ. Like those are the EQ, the quotients EQ we should think also about. BS. Well, <laughs> that, that's like a whole another topic. I'll, yeah, that's. I'll, I'll research that and then I'll be the main presenter for that one. Yeah, that one that'd be a heck of a talk. I'd I'd love to hear all about that one. But I mean, relating it to this issue of race and IQ, when you consider all these different factors and then consider sort of the consequences of it, essentially the claim that Charles Murray makes is a lot of the uh, disparities that we see in society today can essentially be cla- be explained by this IQ difference. And that's because IQ is closely associated with the amount of material success that someone is able to attain. And so that kind of completely change it could change somebody's outlook on policy and outlook on the world uh, and their 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 narrative and how society is structured. You can and say like, oh, he's rich because he deserved it. Right. It's a, it's a very... Um, very to many, it is considered to be a very dangerous idea. And mm-hmm. so in a lot of circles, it's just outright not discussed Mm -hmm. and in fact other people have taken it all the way and have actually claimed uh, that it is genetics and it is completely predetermined Uh, so one of the people very famous person who actually did embrace this conclusion was James Watson who was the pioneer in generating the double helix model that we associate with DNA and he was expelled from academia essentially for making this claim that um, IQ essentially came from genetics and essentially that Africans were just born stupider Mm -hmm. than white people. Yeah, so I think um, in that podcast episode with him and Sam Harris, uh, they were talking about his book, The Bell Curve, and that this kind of, I'm kind of going back to what I've already said, is that there is a a normative or like norms um, around what we can and can't talk about and Charles Murray was genuinely con- considering and worried about IQ being distributed unequally throughout the population and in what ways society could better those people who had less IQ. Uh, so uh, what programs like affirmative action, if you really were to take his conclusion all the way to its end, uh, to what degree and extent should that be backed, uh, and so on. Um, but I think the, the main point here is uh, myself think I think that there's no idea that um, cannot be voiced because it will be un- it'll have to cross the threshold where it passes the utmost of scrutiny and people are worried about equality and, and equity uh, which are two different things equality is uh, fair treatment and equity is uh, equal outcome and uh, those who take one or the other will uh, ultimately come to different conclusions uh, uh, when you pick your social or political issue. And I think that is um, super important when you consider um, political conversation and what how academia colors how cultural conversations are had uh, and shaped. Well, this is where we get to this idea of, I think, knowledge and sophistry, really, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And what it comes down to is essentially can you really claim you know something and are you arguing because you're seeking the truth or are you projecting your values onto the issue and Mm -hmm. using that essentially to uh, push out discussion and what does that show on your opinion Uh, is it dependable 
Uh, and I'm not gonna I'm gonna keep this limited because I don't want to get too much into the issue of mm -hmm. the genetic fallacy yeah. or something like that. Mm -hmm. But sort of weaving together this issue that we're talking about with what you were talking about with critical theory and the lack of standards is mm -hmm. this sort of postmodern idea of truth not really existing. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how before we were talk we were sounding as truth seekers by saying, well, critical theory is nonsense and mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's is, all based what, on postmodernism. What is critical theory in one sentence? Critical theory appropriates the language of Marx, Weber, uh, Weber all of these um, sociologists from the late 1800s. So conflict theory. Uh, conflict theory so takes, takes all the major sociological theories and right. dispenses and with their conclusions. Right, and then the conflict theory, from what I remember in sociology, is um, that people are always at odds with one another, and there's always groups of people fighting. Uh, there's always groups of people fighting for power in society, right? Um, yes to that last part. Um, m critical theory is tearing down assumptions. We, it, it says we all have subjective understandings. You have subjective understanding based on your position in society, whatever status you have, whatever the color of your skin is, that brings with it a set of preconceived notions, and therefore you have a unique experience that is unidentifiable, that is not individual. It is to your group, uh, depending on whatever role you occupy. So you, in critical studies, those assumptions, you tear down whatever your opponent's argument is and say, all right, this is what you can speak on, this is what you cannot. So This is what you can speak on, this is what you cannot. What do you mean by that? Um, so if we're going to contextualize it, I, as a white man, uh, on the face of it, can't talk about um, race in America. And that's what a critical, perhaps a critical race theorist might say to me. It's uh, basically, you know, I mean, it's, it's fallacious it's, it's logic. It's ad hominem, isn't it? Yeah, it's ad hominem. It's, it's utilizing an aspect of something. It's also genetic somebody. fallacy. Right. That, what I mean by genetic fallacy, I don't actually mean, I don't actually refer to genetics. I'm saying right. the genetic fallacy is something is wrong based on where it came from rather mm -hmm. than the intrinsic truth of it. So like, okay, say mm -hmm. I'm, I'm Muslim and then I, and then some Christian comes up to me and says that uh, Jesus is, um, uh, Jesus is a prophet of God. Okay. And then I say to the Christian, oh, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Just, just cause he's a Christian, I say he's wrong. But mm -hmm. the reality was that I was saying that he was wrong because of, because he was being a Christian, not because he was uh, presenting from logic that you. No, because he, what he was saying, what in in my perspective was was right. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I I do. I get what you're saying. Essentially, it's debunking somebody's viewpoint um, simply because. Well, it's like saying to somebody. Instead of responding to their argument, you say to them, "Well, you're only saying that because you were born here in this time yeah. in this place." You know, and it's it's similar, not the same as ad hominem, uh, but whatever the matter. Um, but, claim, but claiming something that's, but claiming that something is ethnocentric. Yeah, that's a whole different. That's a whole different discussion. Right. Yeah. No, we were talking about epistemology. Like, how yeah. do you come to know knowledge? Exactly. And and that is the postmodern perspective is that you can't uh, you can't and therefore we have to put ourselves in in a pragmatic stance and say based off of who i am and what i do so because i'm white because i was born in the u.s i know certain things uh, i'm i'm an affluent relatively affluent family uh, and i cannot uh, know um of the racial experience 
and that um, in my environmental justice class, uh, that means that um, we can't take leadership positions. It's really being taught um, uh, that we should instead be allies. Do you have allies. any quotes from your class? <laughs> um, <laughs> not uh, to call anyone out, yeah, not to call your professor. Yeah, not to call anyone out, but uh, for example, we when going into um, communities of color, we're supposed to be um, very knowledgeable of the fact that we don't know how it is in the community and mm -hmm. that if we were there on a like health initiative for alternative foods, for example, um, we cannot commute the correct information to them, communicate the correct information to them. So say buy organic foods is implicitly racist because I don't understand that they don't have the money for that, nor maybe they don't have uh, the, 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 the food preference or would even want to cook my organic food, even though if I'm coming in with a health initiative saying, hey, buy this organic food or here are some methods to uh, create a wonderful garden. That is the postmodernist will say, hey, Zane, uh, you're an ally and you can bring some technical skill, but your understanding in terms of forwarding their political and social cause is uh, uh, not verified. Does that make sense? Mm. Okay, explain that all in one sentence. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, I'm missing part. What is it? What's what's the principal parsimony? Uh, the the simpler the explanation. Uh, Occam's razor. Yeah. Yeah. The simplest explanation is the right one. Yeah. It's the right one. No, it's. It's I, just I, hard to break down. I think I get what you're saying is that you cannot fully understand someone else's perspective. Absolutely, you can't. No matter how empathetic you are, like. I mean, no, no matter way. how empathetic you are, you cannot understand another person's perspective. Yeah. Which which to some extent is is true. Yeah. Yes, I, I would agree. But where the postmodern critique goes wrong is it assumes that for every case. It is not a it depends situation. It is this is how it always is. Pretty much. And so essentially this is where that so, idea of everybody having their own truth comes from. Okay, so what are the implications of this idea being spread in academia? Um, Does this really have any implications in, in, in life outside of academia? Uh, yes, I, I think so. Like what? So I think I think I think this part of academia is useless. Like every, I personally feel like everything apart from science is pretty useless mm -hmm. in, in academia. I'm sorry to uh, bash on all my uh, <laughs> friends who are social science guys. Well, that's the thing is it it creeps a lot into sociology, philosophy, and the cultural studies, the schools that he is talking about, and is sort of an underlying methodology of breaking down everything into assumptions and sort of taking a lot of what uh, Zane was talking about with issues of race and stuff along those lines. And so you are right to an extent that the hard sciences where you have mathematics and you can actually even, measure even those, things. Even those guys have a lot of BS, which I can get into later on. But. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, this, this sort of spreads. And I think it's also, there's that aspect of postmodernism, but there's there's also the actual personal agendas that do exist that are not necessarily to be framed in exactly the way critical theorists are talking about. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of, well, these social scientists are wrong because they're, they're white or they're this race or mm -hmm. anything to do with their identity or this oppressor versus oppressed matrix. But in social sciences and a lot of these soft sciences, what does exist is a sort of biased, a confirmation bias, and uh, a need to justify a worldview. And so that seeps into especially the social sciences. And so I think this would be a good time, uh, Fahad, for you to start expanding on exactly how 
statisticians and other social scientists can actually uh, sort of manufacture these types of things. Zane, do you want to criticize Tom's uh, uh, his statement? Um, no, I just add to it. So we talked about wow. post postmodern, uh, and then I'll like like. Yeah. Um, there's also positivism, which is more of the hard sciences, right. where you think that everything that can be observed through empirical and analytical means uh, can be uh, objectively tested through the use of the scientific method. Uh, so they say that everything can be, um, based, all the tools we have in science can be used to ascertain a certain truth that does exist out there juxtaposed to the postmodernist who says you can't use, even with all your powerful scientific tools, you cannot um, ascertain the truth of reality. Instead, you find it through different um, additive um, experiences through individuals and groups uh, in the human world. Wait, what is that? Um, what? The Bro. <laughs> I don't know what you said. Man, I'm a, I really should have came with a PowerPoint. Yeah, God bro. Damn. I, I love speaking in abstractions. Um, mm -hmm. da -da 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 -da. I believe the my critique of Thomas uh, in his explanation is, uh, what I would clarify is that these, once again, this is how I've come to this issue, is that it colors how people talk about issues. So... If anyone's seen the Sticks and Stones special by Dave Chappelle, he goes after everyone. He, uh, what is uh, considered politically correct to say today, or what not to say? For example, you don't make jokes about um, people's um, gender uh, pronouns, about race, um, about abortion. These are just topics you stay away from. But uh, Dave Chappelle just goes all out on his new Netflix special, and I, I think what I'm trying to point to is that academia colors how we uh, the knowledge we think is useful cultural knowledge we think is useful in talking uh, about political issues that is probably super not helpful but I I hope that's clear to you <laughs> let us go on and talk about science yes yes right okay so uh, when I was in Saudi Arabia I was helping my dad um, he's my dad's a doctor and he has to do a certain amount of he has to publish a certain amount of scientific papers in order to keep his job right so it's a research hospital and he is a clinician and he is um, and as a doctor you have to publish uh, journals in order to keep your esteem okay? mm -hmm. and you want to help out the hospital as well and the hospital is asking you to do all these things so there is a conflict of interest mm -hmm. in that these doctors, they're trying to keep their jobs, mm -hmm. but they're also, uh, and they're not really that interested in finding out genuine, novel, scientific data. So as a result of that, you have new journals, new scientific journals, predatory scientific journals, that are um, trying to publish anything and everything that they see for a profit. Hmm. So um, the journal would be like, well, give us $3,000 and you will have a subscription to us. And as a result, you can you can give us any of your papers, we'll review them. Um, and then afterwards, if they're satisfactory, but keeping the standards very low, then we're gonna publish your papers. Mm -hmm. So, hmm. um, I'm not saying that my dad uh, published to predatory journals, but, um, that is, some, that is something that does happen, and 
might happen with other doctors that is not my mm-hmm. dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was helping him out in, uh, he gave me a bunch of data um, regarding the speed at which drugs were delivered in the emergency room. So there is, um, there are drugs to open up, the, to help in heart attacks. There mm-hmm. are drugs to sedate patients who are mm-hmm. going crazy and trying to hurt other people. Mm-hmm. There are drugs that, um, like, that open up blood clots, uh, all different types of drugs, okay? Mm-hmm. Emergency drugs that depend on time. So he gave me the, uh, the data and I was looking through the data to see if any of the two, any two drugs out of, there was like 26 different types of drugs, uh, 20 something different types of drugs mm-hmm. to see if there was any statistically significant difference between the time uh, at which the drug was delivered between two different drugs. Okay. So um, it was what, 26, okay, let's say it was 26 drugs and 26 times 25. That will give you um, about 650. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 25 times 25 is 650. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you can uh, calculate yeah, that. I'm if going you'd like to. to. Um, so we had 650 data entries. King, I'm a king. <laughs> 650 data entries, and we were trying to look for p values within that. And this is something that's actually very common in um, in scientific research. It's called p-hacking, which is you are not looking for a, um, you're not looking for your research question, or you're not looking for the answer to your research question. Rather, you're looking for oh, look over here. This one looks uh, this one looks statistically significant just because. Okay. Right. So it's like. Essentially, it's like just like crunching the numbers to fit what you want. Yeah, so you're changing your model, you're changing the variables in order to find something that is publishable because you need a certain, you need a p-value below, um, well, this in science, it's 0.05. Mm-hmm. And the p-value means that, um, so say our p-value for a particular statistical test or for a particular study, say the p-value is 0.05, what does that mean? It means that there is a 5% chance that our results are due to chance. Mm-hmm. So that means that there's a 95% chance that the two variables are correlated in some regard. So in order to, so say you have a, a huge sample size, then you're able, or say you have a really small sample size, then your effect be, or the relationship between the two variables has to be very high Yeah, in order for that uh, effect to be considered statistically significant. And if you are measuring a very small effect, then your sample size is going to be, has to be really, really big in order to see whether that's statistically significant or not. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, as, res- as a result of that, uh, a lot of the scientific journals that you see or a lot of the scientific papers, um, if they have a p-value of 0.05, that means that, that that would mean that like, what, 5% of scientific journals are, are, um, are sci- 5% of scientific papers are due to chance. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's not the whole, that's not, that's only part of the story, right? So there are a bunch of hypotheses that are true, but they're shown, t- 
but they're accidentally shown to be false. So, so there, okay, what in is science, that? there are some hypothesis. Okay, say you have a hypothesis, right? And that hypothesis, it's actually it's true in reality, but it's accidentally shown to be false. Mm -hmm. So I, I forgot if that's a type one error or a type two error. Um, um like a false positive or false negative? Yeah. I think so, so there are there are false positives that happen in science, right? And those true relationships are never found. Yeah. And then there are false negatives which is that something is shown to be true when in reality it's not. Yeah. And then there's there's p-hacking, mm -hmm. which is that oh, it's statistically it's statistically true but in reality it's just not. It's it's just chance. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's I mean that brings up an interesting question about what exactly these these stats mean and when it comes to something like uh you know 5 in 10 people um believe a certain thing and so you you look at a, a classroom full of random students mm -hmm. you know let's say there are 10 of them and you claim and you make that claim that well according to all statistics half of you should um believe this and then you take a poll of the students in the course it turns out that none of them believe it you know it's it's right. it's it's stuff that really kind of sheds light on uh the shortcomings of statistics in general and how it's not the shortcomings of statistics; it's the shortcomings of our applications. That's of true. Statistics. Right? Yeah, it's it's our applications of it, and what people can do to really just manufacture their own narrative mm -hmm. and make assertions that are not true, but that that fit what needs to be fit in order to uh, pursue their motives or to get their paper published. Are you guys familiar with like these advertisements that you see? Is like don't eat this one vegetable. This one vegetable is known to cause right. cancer. Well, and, like and those now, really shady and now, now we come to health science, which, oh, where, where to begin with health science? Yeah. So you go on. Yeah. yeah. So then I think the worst culprit is probably diet, diet science. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Big time. So you have people who are, there's a new movement going on. It's called the carnivore diet. I don't know if you guys are familiar with oh, it. Oh, I bought into it last year. Oh, no, bro. You're stupid. <laughs> well, hey, you know, I, like, look, Red dude, I thought, I thought it was the real deal. And, you know, I, I hear from Mr. PhD uh -huh. or Mr. MD over here, and he says, yeah, carnivore diet, thumbs up. Who? Who? Uh, I don't even remember. Was dude. it Sean Baker? You know, I maybe. But essentially that label was all I needed to see in order for me to say, all right, checks out. This will do. Give me all the red meat. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and then you have, eggs. like, six doctors who are, um, who are pro carnivore diet, and then you have... Um, you put in one more doctor who doesn't agree with them, and now you have six out of seven doctors mm -hmm. agree that yeah. the carnivore diet is the best diet for mm -hmm. human beings. Mm -hmm. Right, and a lot of it, there, there, there is so much of a financial motive because so. it's, well, it's so easily commercialized. So, so how much research do you think is commercialized like that? Well, let me... The tobacco me, industry. Right. Let me just bring up one key example that uh, is another example of patent absurdity. Uh, this actually popped up in my feed from CNN the other day, uh, and it it was a speculative article that the poop of elite athletes may actually contain the secrets mm -hmm. to athletic success. So obviously, on face value, I just said to myself, "Okay, bro, you trying to get views? I get it. It's a bunch of nonsense." But I looked into it, and 
it's a scientist who was trying to make this claim uh, that this practice called poop doping could actually mm-hmm. serve to uh, boost the athletic performance of people because of the discovery of certain um, uh, certain bacteria. Certain bacteria, right? Mm. But the fact was, I looked into it a little bit more, and some researchers from Harvard pointed out that there was actually no way to examine this evidence, and so most of it was absolutely speculative. Mm-hmm. But this did not. Uh, stop these researchers from trying to commercialize the findings, which they actually indicated after presenting the research. What, did they do poop pills? No, no. <laughs> I don't know what they did. But you, know what, you know how a fecal transplant is done? I, I don't know if I, I want to know, to be honest. To <laughs> you would want to know. Like, okay, say a person... Um, you, people Sometimes you're... Um, I think it's like when you have a really strong antibiotic or something like that. Somehow, all the bacteria in your gut die. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, you know what they have to do? You know what they do? Uh, They put literal pieces of poop, okay, in a pill, uh and you swallow that pill. Yes. Yes. Is it very flavored? Do we we get some flavors? No, no, no. You just swallow it. Okay. You don't don't open it. Right. This this is called a fecal transplant. But this, the (laughs) thing that was so crazy was this is distilled out. And then the media will pick up on it, and then they'll put it out there. And they won't use assertive language, but essentially people will buy into it. So what's another example? Well, on the right, there was the phenomenon of, of soy that was really <laughs> big, popular last year. It turned into a huge meme. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, it evolved out of this notion that uh, testosterone levels in males are decreasing, which has been proven true. However, uh, they sought to blame certain chemicals that were in our, our, a lot of the foods, and chief among these chemicals was soy. And so people, a lot of people, uh, a lot of MD, more MDs that I was telling you about, um, who these right-wing people would reference, would say, yeah, soy causes low testosterone because of phytoestrogens, which will uh, essentially turn you into a, a weak beta feminine uh you know, bitch boy. Well, yeah. I, honestly, that's oh, let a, people be. That, that's another discussion for another day. But the fact is that it's nonsense. The whole soy thing was nonsense. And uh, it got a lot of traction. It did get a lot of traction, and it wasn't. The, it the wasn't. Media, it's sensation. It, right. You know. You know. In all actuality, there probably was one study that um, that did say that soy. Maybe you had a correlation with a decrease in testosterone. Well, there was, but there were three others that debunked it. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's what I love about science. That's why that's what, that's good science right there. Mm-hmm. Replicating studies. Yo, there needs to be like a journal out there that just uh, replicates other studies, and there needs to be a. Um, that's what they do within their field, though. Yeah, but more like yeah, for your hard sciences. I mean, others. Yeah, but but universities don't want to fund. Um, repeat research. They want to fund novel research. Right? That's true. A new idea can gain a lot of traction simply because it's new. Mm -hmm. People do not like old ideas. Yeah. So there is a bias inherent to that. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another example of uh, highly sensationalized uh, um, what what are we talking about? (laughs) Highly sensationalized Science. science. Okay, science in products. Okay, so there was this one, dr- I was in the airport, in the Chicago airport, I was 
flying back uh, from from London Heathrow, landed in Chicago, and uh, I had jet lag. So I saw on the counter of the, you know, these like these uh, like pop bookstores, and they have like newspapers mm-hmm. and stuff, mm-hmm. and like chocolates and mm-hmm. and water and whatnot. There was this one drink. It was called I think it was called a like dream dream sauce or dream soup or dream. Sounds dream, legit. Dream something, okay. And the idea is that this thing is supposed to make you fall asleep, okay, in a very, in a very natural way. Uh, I forgot what the name was. It's on Amazon. It's like dream something, mm-hmm. okay. But basically, I read the ingredients, and I found within it three different, um, three different things. Okay, I found melatonin, which is a hormone that is implicated in. Uh, your circadian rhythms. Yeah, I take that every night, actually. Really? Yeah, just a pill of it. I mean, you know, it's it, it it's does a, help me fall asleep. Yeah, but it's it's a hormone, so you're. It, there are multiple effects of that hormone that, um, that you might not be aware of, and it that hormone increases your body's level of melatonin a lot more than um, natural amounts. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so just kind of just careful with that. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you might. Um, I don't know, you might develop it at the tolerance, I'm not sure. But well, I'll keep that in mind. Um, Jesus. If <laughs> take Professor Gary Wank's class on introduction to psychopharmacology and he shows you that a lot of the products that are considered nootropics, uh, even Joe Rogan stuff, even um, like Joe Rogan's company, it's called mm-hmm. like Alpha Brain, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I've I've heard of that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, Alex Jones's stuff. That's all nonsense. Yeah, that's it's all BS. Right. Um, Alex yeah, Jones is drinking nitrogen yeah. dioxide, bro. This guy is... <laughs> yeah, all, all these sort of weird fad. And a, a lot of it is just weird fad diets. Mm-hmm. Like back in the day, everybody... In the 90s, there were so many diets where they said, oh, you just don't eat fat ever. Yeah. Get rid mm-hmm. of fat. And that would basically be the secret to getting shredded. Uh, and then it was Atkins, and now it's intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. So these no, but fasting works, though. It's a bit different. <laughs> well, fasting fasting does work. Uh, I, I have tried fasting, so it works for me. Works for that me much, too. I know. It works for you, but other you people know, might gorge at the end of the day. And exactly. It, it's it really is not something that you can say. Ah, yeah, it works. Uh, it's almost like if you've ever seen Anchorman two, he talks about. It works 50% of the time, every time. It's <laughs> it's these these sort of just like popular diets that just kind of influence our decisions. Okay, back to what I was talking about. Uh, yeah. I was talking about neurotransmitters. Melatonin's not a neurotransmitter, it's a hormone. So in this, in this drink, it had GABA, it had 5-HTP, and then it had melatonin. Mm. So melatonin, from that, okay, from what, I've, from what I've read online is that melatonin is the only... Uh, only thing within that drink that crosses into your blood and into the blood-brain barrier, okay? Whereas GABA, it doesn't even cross into the blood-brain barrier, so it doesn't even affect your brain, mm. but yet they're putting it in drinks. Why? Because I... I For mind control, right? No. <laughs> I mean, it so can't even, can can't even get... Five more dollars. <laughs> yeah, right? It, it can't even get into your brain, so they're, they're just putting this ingredient in there just to just for marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. Another thing is 5-HTP. 5-HTP is the precursor to serotonin. And serotonin, I guess, supposedly is supposed to increase when you're when you're falling asleep and help you fall asleep. But the thing is, that too does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Okay. Oh. So um, GABA and 5-HTP, 
these things they don't it's like they're putting it in your in your drinks and they're not doing anything okay mm. so mm -hmm. a lot of these things are just marketing gimmicks okay another thing is uh, the, the placebo effect it's something like um, like ang it's like anxiety or uh, I know pain okay pain um, that is highly affected by the placebo effect right pain um, depression yeah is highly impacted by the placebo effect mm -hmm. and I, I think it's anxiety but yeah I'm, I'm not entirely sure well but take professor Gary Wang's class psychopharmacology hmm. uh, it's I think psych 4305 right yeah wow. yeah take that class so yeah. it's a higher level, level bro yeah, yeah. it'll be a little bit difficult mm -hmm. but whatever the matter um that actually what that reminded me of actually is um there's this guy by the name of Johan Hari. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of him. Mm -hmm. He's a Swiss journalist, uh, Swiss-British journalist, who essentially, he came out with this idea of depression that uh, that visualizes it in the sense that we've been looking at it all wrong, that we've been looking at it in terms of it's simply caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, and so that way it can be resolved through drugs. And, you know, this might be spilling over into a conversation about the nature of the opioid crisis and how when you're in pain or when you are suffering from something like anxiety and depression, how a uh, doctors will now just give you pills and they'll think that pills mm -hmm. will solve all your problems and opioids. But then next thing you know, you're addicted mm -hmm. to those types of things. Uh, but you what you're saying, essentially, it sounds like it's drawing on a lot of these issues, like with the placebo effect and how it's relatively hard to uh, ensure that this or that is gonna make the pain go away or this or that is gonna make your depression or your anxiety go away. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, so if I just give you even a sugar tablet, your pain might decrease up to 50%. Right. Just from freaking, just from freaking sugar, okay? Wow. Um, there was this one article on ammo.com, which is a very hardcore right-wing <laughs> website. Uh, someone sent it. Ammo.com? Something like that, man. <laughs> okay, they were talking about how um, antidepressants are correlated with an increase in homicide. Okay. And what they did was... Interesting. What they did was uh, they tried to use anecdotes and media stories in order to try to establish a general trend. Mm. Bro, we see this way Ooh. too much, okay? Ooh. We see this way too much in... in um, when people talk with one another, it's something called the availability heuristic, that they just because they see it often, they think that um, that frequency represents the actual case. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like you see, oh my gosh, in the media, so many people are dying and it, everything is so bad. But in reality, this is the most peaceful time in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, just because it there's a lot of case studies or a better way to phrase it is anecdotes do not uh, anecdotes cannot um, this anecdotes have nothing to do with the general trends right Hom the reality is that um, the studies that link homicide and antidepressants are are very flawed they have uh, conflicting okay the studies have conflicting results mm -hmm. and there might be more things at play other than just um like it's, it might not even be a causal relationship it might be just a correlation of relationship maybe mm -hmm. we're attributing a false yeah. cause that saying that um antidepressants are the cause of of homicide 
when maybe it's just that okay they're depressed to begin with okay depressed people might be more violent and uh, i'm not saying that they are but like i'm just mm-hmm. giving you up uh, like a hypothetical but depressed I'm, people are not more violent. yeah so i mean to really put a lot of this conversation into a good broader view i think it it is hard not to kind of throw your hands up and just say you can't know anything and essentially to succumb to this uh, more postmodern viewpoint that everything just needs to be broken down and framed in terms of its assumptions and there's no truth to be known and when you go through these studies and when you see how people can bring flaws to certain scientific fields and you know decrease someone's faith in in this big thing they call science you really kind of are left with this idea that well you know it's kind of hard not to avoid maybe you know the postmodernists have a point but at the same time you can't succumb to that either Mm -hmm. because there are things that you know to be true and there is such a thing as truth and really what people are trying to do with the practices of science and and philosophy and argument it really people try to attach this use of like science like it's some great big thing that just came along and is just the master at at discerning truth but it's just hard to even define so really in terms of it is what i would say essentially to sum up is that when it comes to knowing truth there's no catch-all you have to have those standards and you have to use logic and you know whatever amounts to science argument evidence Mm -hmm. but at the same time you do have to recognize that just because somebody claims to be a scientist or claims to hold that mantle doesn't mean that they exactly know what they're talking about okay so now let's try a little bit of practice guys okay i'm going to read to you uh, a piece by the telegraph yes my uh, famous british accent um, it's called Antidepressants Linked to Murders and Murderous Thoughts, and it's written by Sarah Nap- Napton, K-N-A-P-T-O-N, um, for the science editor. <coughs> Antidepressants have been linked to 28 reports of murder and 32 ca- cases of murderous thoughts. In cases referred to the UK medicines regulator over the past 30 years, a BBC investigation has discovered The pills, known as Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs, which includes common drugs like Prozac and Serosat, are prescribed 40 million times each year in Britain. But but a Freedom of Information request for BBC Panorama discovered that the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency had received 60 reports of murders or murderous thoughts linked to the drugs in the past three decades. Professor Peter Tyra, a psychiatrist at the Imperial College of London, has been assessing the performance of SSRIs since they were first introduced in the 1980s. Although the link between murders and antidepressants in, case, in the cases referred to the MHRA do not mean that the drugs caused the events, Professor Tyra told the program makers and that the extreme side effects of the drugs should be investigated further. You can never be quite certain with a rare side effect whether it's linked to a drug or not because it could be related to other things, he said. But it's happened just too frequently with this class of drug to make it random. It's obviously related to the drug, but we don't know exactly why. The program also looked into the claims that the Batman movie killer James Holmes 
who killed 12 people at a midnight premiere in cinema at the midnight c- premiere cinema screening at Colorado in 2012 was taking the SSRIs Serta, Sertraline at the time of the murders. Analyzing Holmes' notebooks and psychiatric interviews with him carried out after the killings, the program found that he appeared to lose his fear of consequences as the results, as the drugs removed his anxiety. As the dose of sertraline was increased, the program shows his obsessive thoughts became psychotic. UK-based psychiatrist Professor David Healy, who was an advisor to Holmes' defense team, was interviewed. Holmes' defense team interviewed Holmes while he was awaiting trial to Panorama. I believe if he hadn't taken the serotraline, he wouldn't have murdered anyone. However, court psychiatrist Dr. William Reed, who also interviewed Holmes before the trial, told the program makers that he thought the killings were a result of mental illness and completely unrelated to the medication. Prosecuting attorney George Brochler told Panorama, I don't think the medications caused the shootings. I think this guy with his evil thoughts, having concluded that he had no alternative future with the mental illness, led to this. That's what I think did it. The role of drugs was not explored in court, and the defense team did not call on Professor Healy to give evidence. Holmes was found guilty of all charges and is serving one of America's longest ever prison sentences. Professor Tyrer is calling on the courts to take into account the possible effects of SSRIs in cases where people taking drugs commit violent crime. Although it makes the whole process a little bit more complicated, I think that it is going to become necessary in the future. Drugs manufacturer Pfizer, who developed sertraline, said a causal link between sertraline and homicidal behavior has not been established and that the drug has helped millions of people. Well, guys, okay. There's a lot to break down in this. Well, I... Okay, look, okay, let's, let's start off with the headline, okay? It says, antidepressants linked to murders and murderous thoughts. What is What kind of thought is that trying to push into the, od- into the audience's mind? That it's the cause. Yeah. That it's the cause, like, that it's causing these things to happen. Okay, and then let's look at their evidence. What evidence do they bring up? They bring up that uh, its antidepressants have been linked to 28 reports of murder and 32 cases of murderous thoughts. And then... In the past 30 years? I don't know if I heard that right. Yeah, it's in, yeah you're right. It's in the past 30 year. years. And that these drugs are prescribed 40 million times each year yeah, in Britain. Already, I'm thinking that, I mean, that's very spur- spurious in meaning, like, there could be a lot of causes and, right. like, no clear relationship, so... yeah. You said they're distributed 40 million times a year. Yeah. Over the past 30 years, there have been 28 Reports case, of murder. 28 reports of murder. And 32 cases of murderous thoughts. And 32 cases of murderous thoughts. Okay. So 40 million times every year in the past 30 years. You're obviously going to get some nutters. Exactly. Right. Um, so just from the outset, it's just not doing well. But, yeah. you know. And I find it interesting that one of the um, psychologists wanted that to be, like, an important thing after the fact. Like, in in court documentation, they wanted that to be evaluated as a crucial piece of evidence. Like, that that doesn't seem proportionate. The proceeding already went on. He's already getting his prison sentence. Why are we talking about the drug 
that one because is very clear is his motivation uh, according to other yeah but well the the defense guy says that oh it's the cause of the drug that is that that's why my attorney that's why my defendant is caught that's why my defendant killed so many people yeah that that seems like a weak argument for them uh and I think that's interesting that this article tries to bear that to light. Because it says it's happened, okay, one of the quotes in this article says, it's happened just too frequently with this class of drug to make it random. It's obviously related to the drug, but we don't know exactly why. Yeah, I wonder how many, there are so many, like, families of drugs. Like, I mean, broadly, you have barbiturates, you have depressants, um, you have um, synthetic opioids uh, versus like naturally occurring opioids like yeah, you can but say it's, it's talking about it's talking about SSRIs in particular yeah there I guarantee you there's there's so many in SSRIs that's I don't know it just sounds like uh, if I were Pfizer's that's the drug company right yeah if I was there it's the world's actually I think it's like the most profitable or the biggest drug company in the world yeah. actually uh, that sounds like it's sponsored by one of their other competitors just to <laughs> If I'm going to use my Marxist theory to explain that. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounds stupid. Yeah. That's but, true. But it's pretty, it is pretty funny mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. look at that. Do you have anything? No, I've, I've pretty much covered it, honestly. Do you think, um, okay, I just have one last point that I had written down for uh, uh, limitations to research in the U.S. is too much focus on the rights of the individual. Mm-hmm. Human rights impedes scientific progress. Wow. Yes. Hot take. Yep. So, the, are you guys familiar with HIPAA? Yeah. yeah. What's HIPAA? It's an Information Protection Act. Um, right from to privacy. The, from the 70s. Okay, but um, what does it do? It grants uh, pretty broad um, protections for individuals in terms of how their medical information is um, transferred within systems, and also um, how doctors uh, can handle that data. Yeah, and insurance companies, they can't give out, you know, information about a patient. It'd be right. a HIPAA violation. Yeah, okay, good. So, um, in China, they don't have that. Because mm-hmm. they don't really val- they don't really believe too much in human rights. and mm-hmm. Well, certainly not the right to privacy. Yeah, not, which, yeah, exactly. I not mean, wasn't even, it wasn't even conjured up in America until the 60s. Yeah, so they are, are they're pretty collectivistic as a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe that the the society at large, or the society is a lot more uh, has more rights on the individual than the individual has rights on the society. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay because you don't have HIPAA laws, um, I can um, I can freely exchange and read up into uh, patients' medical records. Okay, I can pull out um, X rays. Right. Um, so say, for example, I wanted to train an AI using everyone's x-rays to uh, be able to determine whether an x-ray or determine whether have this AI be able to determine whether this x-ray is um, is abnormal or not. OK, I'm only able to do this kind of research in China because in the U.S., I'm going to have to get consent from people, right? Mm-hmm. So as a result, consent is consent and privacy is limiting research. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's there's that example, and then you can make that slippery slope argument. It's like, oh, um, well, Hitler he used gasoline and he injected people with gasoline, 
just to see what people will do. Mm -hmm. um, well, I would say that's a pretty solid argument. It's pretty true, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, people, uh, as an American citizen, I believe that people have the right to uh, protect their own health information. Right. Well, there is also the ethical side, too. I don't want people selling my genome. Right. I did the 23andMe a couple days ago. Yeah. Um, I haven't got the results back, but I spat in the in the tube and I sent it off. I don't want them to sell my genetic information to my insurance company. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. Yeah, what if I have a disease? Like, what if I, uh, God forbid, what if I get Huntington's disease? And that would drive your rate up. Yeah, that's going to drive my rate up. And then I had no control over that. Like, right. I, have, I have control whether I smoke or not. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of ethical considerations with uh, science and experimentation to keep in mind too, though. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, specifically when it comes to this medical stuff, uh, another thing people talk about a lot is uh, the sort of risk when it comes to gun control. Mm -hmm. People have called for a nationwide, essentially medical mental health uh, record that would keep everybody's mental health records and would be uh, accessible by people who are going to sell weapons and if somebody has, you know, a bad history of mental health, mm -hmm. then they would be barred from, from providing a weapon. So, like, you know, the reason uh, I express hesitancy when people give those proposals is because I say, well, you see, you're not only dealing with the Second Amendment now, now you're also talking about one's right to privacy. Uh, which, again, let me elaborate a little bit on this uh, this idea that it was conjured up in the 1960s. Uh, that kind of sounds like I don't agree with the idea that right to privacy exists. Essentially, Griswold v. Connecticut established the idea of the right to privacy. Uh, and it was essentially, it comes from the essences of several other of the amendments that are in the Bill of Rights, as well as the Ninth Amendment, which holds that there are uh, unenumerated rights that citizens also have. So essentially, this right to privacy is not formally in the Constitution, but it is an integral part of American culture. Um, well, American culture. Culture and now law. And pol yeah, politics as well. For sure. Uh, I kind of want to elaborate um, on Fahid's article and then follow up um, to Tom's point. So well, well, the article that I'm referencing, by the way, is called How Healthcare Data and Lax Rules Help China Prosper in AI. And then um, there's like a subtitle. Gathering healthcare data is much easier for Chinese companies than for their U.S. counterparts, a boost for machine learning algorithms. So what's interesting is um, in terms of um, ethics and like competing interest of like business technological innovation, uh, a lot of um, medications that are on the market today were, uh, according to my uh, medical sociology class and where we read a book called um, Medical Apartheid, um, which takes a critical race lens to um, technology innovation. Uh, it, it points out in the 60s on up that a lot of biomedical and pharmaceutical companies um, field tested their medications like um, medications for hypertension, medications for depression, medications or vaccinations for uh, you name your top diseases, polio, measles, all these different things were tested in Africa because um, here in the U.S. Um, internal review boards in academia have jurisdiction over researchers and there are outlined criteria to how to conduct your research. But in Africa, uh, that, that much of that structure does not exist. So you'd have these exotic um, 
um, job positions offered by businesses uh, to researchers from uh, that academy to field test these, and oftentimes they would um, do it under um, shady ethical situations, so ca cash programs if you take this drug uh, for X amount of um, months uh, and tell us how you do. And uh, connecting Damn. that back to this article, so it has happened, uh, in, and I, I encourage you to look up medical apartheid. On, on well, the who's the author? Harriet uh, T. Washington. Um, she's very good, uh, very good writer. Um, but also relating to this article in terms of privacy, it, it does ask. Oh, yeah, who's the author of this article? I always want to give credit. It's written on Wired.com and written by oh shit, uh, Tom Sim Simonite. Simonite. Cool. Yeah. Um, in terms of looking forward how technology innovation and our privacy overlaps that's one way because uh, now um, our data is more um, useful and more prof profitable than oil according to a lot of hey what's more profitable uh, than oil uh, our personal data our personal and, data is more profitable yeah, than oil yeah when yeah. you when you think about targeted marketing oh, yeah. um, and all these other um, algorithms that put together consumer preferences with how they interact with the product like you don't you don't just you're not just when you're scrolling through Netflix you're you're not the only one watching they'll they'll see what um, how the format works how you uh, choose your show uh, how much time you spend on it there's like oh there's so much technology news that covers this phenomenon like this but it's interesting to think how our privacy through abstract and possible in a lot of obscure ways uh, um, is subject to being used for um, market incentives. And here I go again with my basic uh, Marxist assumptions. But I do think uh, this is an interesting uh, place of research, uh, bioethics especially. It, it kind of ties into our face culture, dignity culture. Yeah, mm -hmm. face culture, dignity culture well, for that podcast. That, um, it relates to that podcast that we did, mm -hmm. um, our, our previous podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You think privacy should be the next topic? Yeah, why not? I'd That'd be good. Yeah, that would yeah. be good. Yes, I sir. Talk about net neutrality and all this other stuff. Oh, totally. All righty, then. This has been three bucks, one, one mic. One mic. <laughs> <laughs>